Welcome to Salt Company. Guys, I'm excited to be here. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Tony. We are continuing our series in Romans chapter 8. Are you guys liking Romans 8? Come on. Romans 8. So good. Got to get excited for Romans 8. Anyways, really excited to be back here tonight. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, I'm so excited to, to be able to be here today with you. And if you're new here to Salt Company, I just want to say that you're not alone. That every Thursday that we've had a Thursday, there have been new people. And so we want to get you connected. Like Rachel said, we'd love for you to be a part of our family here at Salt Company. And, and lastly, before I pray and we jump in, I, I want to reiterate what, something that Rachel said, which is that what we're about to do tonight is to open up God's word and hear from him. And it's actually his words that transform us, not any of our words, not any of what's going on here. It's not the name of Salt Company we pray is made famous in this city, but we pray it's the name of Jesus that is made famous in this city. And so we're excited about that. That's what we gather every Thursday to do, and we're pumped to open up God's word together. So let me pray that that would be true for all of us. Father, yeah, there's... Um, there's so many things happening outside of these walls right now in all of our lives that uh, can just be hard. It can be difficult to actually focus in on what you're saying to us in this moment because we feel afraid or anxious or unsure of what the future has for us. Or maybe there's people in this room right now that are carrying in something that uh, they actually haven't told anyone about. It's actually something that's been weighing on them heavily, but they've been too afraid to let people in because they're worried they'd be a burden. And uh, Jesus, we just want to ask you tonight to begin to transform us from the inside out, that our souls would be made different because of your word tonight, and that we would believe what's true, that, Father, you are with us, that you are for us, and there's nothing that we have to fear. And so, Father, we do pray that tonight your name would be made famous, and it wouldn't be about any of us, but it would be about you. Amen. All right. Have you guys ever noticed that people settle? Yikes. Some of you guys are like, oh, no. I saw some chair grabs, I think. Like, uh-oh. So people settle. Here's the reality. When I was young, I really wanted to be a doctor. And the reason was because every young Asian kid in the entire world wants to be a doctor. You know it's true. It's not statistic. Yeah, Tom, you get it. It's not statistic, but anecdotally, you know it's 100% true. The irony is both my sisters became doctors. So annoying. I mean, why would you want to do that to your little brother? Anyway, so I really wanted to be a doctor. But then I got to high school, and I started getting these things called Bs. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. They're a little bit better than Cs, but worse than As. And I got a lot of them. Like, I got those the most. And I knew immediately that there's no way that I could become a doctor. So I settled. No med school. That's fine. When I was in seventh grade, I started competitively swimming. Bit of a stretch. I wouldn't say it was competitive. I swam in a pool next to other people, and they timed us all, okay? And I read um, a book on Michael Phelps. And guys, you know when you're in seventh grade, you're like, you can do anything, right? And I was like, man, with just a little bit of hard work and determination, you know? I, too, could win eight gold medals. But unfortunately, God capped me at 5'7", and I sink in water. It's embarrassing. People are like, didn't you used to swim? I'm like, I know, but it's hard for me now. Like, it just give me some grace. But we settle, right? I didn't become a doctor, clearly. I didn't become the next Olympic swimmer. So all of us settle. All of us settle on our career, on our athletic endeavors, on our dreams. But maybe the most painful reality for a lot of us isn't that we've just settled on what we do, but on the person that we'd become. And actually, 
I think for a lot of us in this room, we've settled on the foundation of our identity being formed by the culture around us. And we've come in tonight just saying, this is how it is. This is just who I am. Nothing will ever change. And here's the cultural definition of identity that you'll find outside of these walls. I believe we will find it on the screen. I actually never know if the stuff actually comes on the screen. I just hope it does. The whole time, I'm like, I hope there's a verse. Anyways, here's what the cultural identity is for you outside of these walls, that you are only as worthy as your achievements and your appearance. That your value as a human being is based fundamentally on what you do or what you look like. Have you guys ever wondered why you get so anxious? I think this is a question a lot of us ask all the time. There are moments in our life where we're about to engage with something and we're like, I don't know why, but I'm unbelievably anxious right now. Whether that's a test or a moment on the field, whatever that is for you, we are unbelievably anxious creatures. And here's why I believe that is. It's because I think a lot of us here, we're not afraid to make mistakes. We're afraid that we are a mistake. We're not afraid to fail. We're afraid that we'll become failures. And I think for a lot of us here, our identity has been subconsciously and maybe even invisibly placed in the way that culture would define identity for us rather than what Christ defines identity for us. So you guys remember last week, we kind of talked about beliefs versus behaviors. And here's a belief that we believe that we are made in the image of God and our identity is in Christ. It can never be taken away from anyone. And yet we get to the calc test. And moments before that paper is placed on our table, our heart rate begins to raise because we've actually placed how we view ourselves into that test. And that score is not just a score for the calc test, but it's a score in your life. And deep, deep down, you're kind of wondering and asking the question, am I actually worth it? Does my value reside in anything else? Or maybe for you, you live with a life of paralyzing social anxiety and you're afraid wherever you go that people won't approve of you, and that's because deep down you actually don't approve of yourself. This is an identity formed in the crucible of culture that would make us feel anxious over achievement, appearance, and approval of others. And this is the world that we live in. But Salt Company, here's my hope for all of us tonight, is that we would see that although we may have settled for that type of identity, that there's a new way. There's a new way to know who you are that cannot be taken by anyone, and that is to know that your identity is firmly rooted in the person of Christ. So here's my big idea for you tonight. When you know who you are, you'll know how to live. When you know who you are, you'll know how to live. Open up with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 12 through 17. If you have a Bible, I know it's dark as heck in here, okay? Just take it out. Pretend like you're reading it. I don't know. Take out a nap. Just do something, okay? We'll read the first couple verses of Romans chapter 8. Okay, verses 12 through 14. I'm just going to keep this permanently unscrewed. Wow, I screwed that on so hard. It's really hard to take off. Anyways, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. All right, here's the deal. Let's get right into it. Paul begins the passage of scripture that we're about to study today with an identity statement, a we are, a you are statement. And here's what he says. Because of the truths that we discussed last week in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, that you are not condemned. That even while you were still a wretched and broken sinner, Jesus Christ came to die for you. Because of that truth, you are no longer debtors to the flesh. And here's what that means, is that old life has nothing to say about how you live now. And Eugene Peterson would talk about it like this. 
so you don't see, so don't you see that we don't owe this DIY life one red cent? I assume that's a penny, okay? One penny. That was really funny to me when I actually saw that on the screen. I was like, that's hilarious. One red cent who says that. Anyways, there's nothing in it for us, nothing at all. See, here's what Eugene Peterson is saying as a paraphrase of what Paul is saying in verse 12. That if you are in Christ, you are made new. Which means you don't have to run back to dead things to find life. You don't have to run back to your old life before you met him. This is an identity statement that Paul is saying. You are not enslaved to the sin and shame of your past. You are set free. If you're here last, night, last week, we talked about the human dilemma where our beliefs don't match our behaviors. Frustrating. But this is what Paul is saying. That even when we do things that we don't want to do and we don't do things that we want to do, that's actually not who we are anymore. That even when we sin and fall into the stuff that we hate, that is not who we are anymore. And in fact, that sin and that shame that clings so closely and feels so heavy actually doesn't have to define you anymore. That it doesn't enslave who you are. See, this is the beauty of verse 12. Paul's showing us that there is a way out from the oppression and burden of sin and shame. And that's by knowing who we are. Look with me to verse 14 to get a bit of more of a specific identity statement. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Okay, so what I want you to see is it's not a gender-specific statement. This is a legal statement. And Paul is describing a fundamentally simple and astonishingly beautiful theological concept that when you believe in Jesus, you don't just get saved. You get invited into the family of God. You get adopted by Jesus himself. And here's what Tim Keller says about this image of adoption that I think is so stinking beautiful, okay? The image of adoption tells us that our relationship with God is based completely on a legal act by the father. You don't win a father. You don't negotiate for a parent. Adoption is a legal act on the part of the father. It is very expensive and costly only for him. There's nothing the son does to win or earn the status. It is simply received. See, this is what I love about this text, is it introduces a theological concept called adoption, and that's to show us that it's a perfect picture and pointer to salvation. See, this is what happens when you get saved. You are completely saved by God's works alone. It is not by your own doing. He filed the papers. He paid the bills. He left his home to go to a foreign land so that you could experience a new home. He left heaven to earth so that you could experience heaven. And he paid for it by his own blood. He came and pursued us with the reckless abandon, the adoption is the perfect imagery of salvation. And this is what J.J. Packer says about the Christian. What is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that the, question, the Christian, the question, I almost, I almost, I can't even let myself go with that one. The Christian <clears throat> is the one who has God as father. See, Saul Company, you know, when you know that you've been adopted, that when you get saved, Jesus invites you into the family, the question changes from who am I to whose am I? The question changes from who am I to whose am I? Because here's what the who am I question says. It says I got to go out there. I got to go kind of check everything out. I got to hear from other people who I am. Or maybe I got to look within myself to find my own identity. But the problem with the modern view of the identity, where you can just look within yourself and figure it out on your own, is that the pursuit of self is actually a secular salvation scheme that says you can find yourself if you look hard enough, but here's the problem with looking within yourself. The problem is it makes you, at, at the end of the day, an incredibly self-obsessed person 
that is neurotic about the way that people think of you and your achievements, your, uh, is, your achievements, what are the other things? Your appearance. I mentioned this in the intro, so I wanted to tie it back in. Anyways, you become neurotic about what people think of you. And this is what Jeff Cook says about this experience of looking within yourself to try to find yourself. This is what he says. There are more I make my life, my well-being, my enlightenment, and my success primary, the further I step from reality. Thus, the hellbound do not travel downward, they travel inward, which is a wild sentence. Cocooning themselves behind a mask of vanity, personal rights, religiosity, and defensiveness, obsession with the self is a defining mark of a disintegrating soul. Here's what will happen to you if you try to spend the next 60 years of your life looking within yourself to find who you are is your soul will slowly implode. You will be subject to the masters of affirmation, achievement, and appearance, enslaved to the consuming likes, products, or accolades, buying into a scheme of salvation that will leave you empty or exhausted. If you aim to find yourself within yourself, you will become self-obsessed and cocooning, hiding behind vanity and pride. You will die. You'll spend the rest of your life living for the applause of other people, and it will never be enough. So the deepest, most beautiful question you get to ask yourself tonight is not who am I, but whose am I? Because when you ask that question, here's what happens. It begins to ultimately reorder your soul and ultimately reorder your identity. Because when you ask the question, whose am I, the, cha the question changes. Not from, okay, what, what, what can I bring to the table? But it goes from, what can God bring to the table? It goes from saying, hey, I'm going to find my worth in what other people think of me or even what I think of me. But instead you say, no, I'm going to find my worth in what God thinks of me. And what it does is it begins to reorder your broken desires. It reorders the depths of your soul, the depths of your soul that wanted to feel known and loved in regards of your actions, your appearance. You can only find that in the person and beauty of Jesus. See, when your father in heaven says you are his son and daughter, you receive a new identity. And here's the identity that you get. You get an indestructible identity that is radically resilient to any of the world's circumstances or man's words. An identity based not on what you do, but on what God has done and his words and what he says about you. Tim Keller talks about it like this. If you believe the gospel and all its remarkable claims about Jesus and what he has done for you and who you are in him, then nothing that happens in this world can actually get at your identity. Imagine for a moment what it would be like to believe this. Imagine a life where literally nothing in the world can get at you. D minus on the calc test doesn't say anything about me. Being left by your girlfriend or boyfriend doesn't say anything about me. Not being the most impressive person in the room, the most popular person in the room, the more athletic person in the room doesn't say anything about me. Because here's what says the loudest words to my soul. They are from Jesus himself. And it was never anything to do with my works anyways. And imagine a life where you feel so secure in your foundation and your identity in Christ that nothing can change you. Nothing can shake your foundation because God himself cannot be shaken. How would you live? I can imagine you would enjoy life way more. I can imagine the joy would ooze out of you and you would actually have the resources in your heart to love other people because you know that you have been unconditionally loved by the God of the universe. 
I could imagine that you would actually enjoy the good gifts he's given you instead of elevating them up to deity levels, like good things like school and sports and whatever, that those things you would be able to enjoy finally instead of obsessing over whether or not our value is tied to our performance. So I think we would actually be a radically different people, and I think the people on our campuses would ask the question, how is it that that person doesn't care about the words of the people around them? And the answer is because the only words that matter to you are from God. And would that actually change us? Would that actually change us? See, when you become a Christian, your title and name changes from sinner to saint. Or in textual language, you go from being a slave to a son. See, guys, this is the grandeur of the gospel. This is not just about forgiveness. It is about forgiveness, forgiveness of our sins. There is no longer any condemnation. But it's not just forgiveness of our sins. It's being invited into the family of God. You're being adopted by a compassionate father that wants you to live not just a sinless life, but a righteous life in him. And here's what he gives you. A life where you don't have to care about what people think about you or your performance, but your mind and your soul are so obsessed with the person and beauty of Jesus that you can walk in joy in any circumstance. He doesn't just want to forgive you. He wants to invite you in to the family of God. And when we get that, it changes everything. We go, working, we go from working for his affirmation to working from his affirmation. We go from working for identity, resting in our identity. We go from being a slave to a son. This is who we are. So Saul Company, if that's who we are, no longer slaves but sons. And when we know whose we are, then we begin to know how to live. Look with me to verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you know whose you are in Christ, this is what it frees you up to do. The next responsibility and power and opportunity you have is to kill sin. It's to kill the thing that you thought of last Thursday that has been holding you so tightly. You actually, by the power of the Spirit, have the ability to kill sin. And here's why you need to kill sin. Here's why resisting sin or managing sin isn't enough. It's because if you do not kill sin, sin will kill you. Sin is the very thing that has been keeping you from the identity in Christ that you've so deeply desired that has actually begun, that will actually begin to reorder your deepest desires and loves. The sin in you is keeping you from the life that Jesus has designed for you. And if you do not understand this, you will spend the rest of your life resisting and managing sin day by day only to realize at the end of your life that you lived a life that was still in bondage even when you didn't owe the flesh anything anymore. Your experience as a Christian will be tainted. You'll still struggle with the same stuff you struggled with when you were 14 years old in that basement. That's what you'll struggle with. But if you take sin seriously and realize that this isn't about behavior modification, this isn't about a little bit of a better discipline strategy, this is about, by the Spirit, killing sin, the sin that clings so closely, you have in Christ the power to kill it. And this is how we can. We can do it because the Spirit is speaking to us. Look with me to verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness about our spirit, with our spirit, that we are children of God. I'll read that again because I messed up in the middle of it. 
Sorry, I get thirsty. My voice just gets so raspy. Anyways, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Okay, this is a super wild theological concept. Did not know this before studying for this sermon, so let me get excited. Here's the deal. Here's how it works. The Spirit of God, big S Spirit, right? Holy Spirit, part of the Trinity, talks to your spirit, like your small S Spirit, which is your soul, and this is how he does it. This is how he defeats sin in your life. He reminds you of who you are. He just does. And so this is how it practically works, right? Let's say you're kind of going out. All your friends are going to the bar. They're about to get wasted. You're like, okay, like, am I going to do that? Like, do I want to do that? You just heard this sermon, and you're like thinking about this moment. You're like, should I do that? I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't. Okay, you're at the bar, right? You literally have a decision to make. It's like things are going to get wild. Walk in holiness. Okay? In this moment, here's what you do. You say, hey, hey, spirit, I'm not going to lie, man. Sin looks really fun right now. I'll be straight. Sin looks super attractive. Can you remind me of who I am? And then the Holy Spirit looks into your soul and he says, hey, you know what? You actually don't need a drink to have a good time. Because I filled you with the river of life and there's joy abundantly in me. So you're like, oh, all right. And then you walk away. Okay? Boom, boom, boom. You're like, I don't need that. Okay? The next moment of sin, when you're now judging those people for drinking, but you're not seeing your own sin, okay, another opportunity. Spirit, I'm starting to feel self-righteous because I thought I did that on my own even though I didn't. Wasn't willpower at all, but whatever. Can you remind me of who I am? Oh, I actually don't have to be self-righteous because I know that I didn't even earn my own salvation. I didn't even earn grace, which means, oh, you're right. I'm a child of God. I don't need a sin. Here's what the Spirit does to you when he looks into your soul and he says, hey, you know who you are? A child of God. Sin loses its taste. Sin becomes less attractive. The stuff that used to get you, the stuff that you were like, man, I cannot wait for the weekend to get wasted with my friends. Don't need it. The sexual sin that you just kept going back to every night, don't need it. The judgmental heart attitude that you've had about self-righteousness, don't need it. Why? Because when you know who you are, the beauty of Jesus becomes better than the attraction of sin. The beauty of Jesus is actually better. And what he's done for you and who he is to you and what you mean to him is actually better than sin. See, by the Spirit reminding us of who we are, here's what he begins to do. He begins to reorder our desires. At once... Drinking, greater than sign, Jesus. Today, it's a new day. Sin, greater, more attractive than Jesus. Today, the Spirit switches it, and Jesus is better than sin. And over a lifetime of saying to the Spirit, Lord, I'll be honest, sin looks attractive for me right now. I think it's going to satisfy me. I think it's going to make me happy. Can you remind me of who I am? You begin to live into your true identity that says you are no longer a debtor to the flesh but to the Spirit. And he begins to change your heart. I want to I close on this idea that um, verse 17 talks about. Oh, this part just gets me. That when you know whose you are, you know how to live, and you know how to hope. And I want to talk about a group of saints in our nation's history. And I'm partly doing this for Black History Month to, to remember the saints. But... Um, 
mostly just because I just really respect these faithful followers of Jesus. They understood something different about being heirs of the kingdom of God than we do now. They understood that this life wasn't all that there was. And that one day heaven would come crashing into earth and that they would experience heaven. Yeah, Ben, you guys can come up. That's great. I, this we happened last week, so I just want to, you can, you can do that. They understood verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer for, with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And here are the saints that I want to talk about. These saints were in the slave trade in America. These saints worshiped through song. These were faithful, strong, beautiful followers of Jesus that understood something deeply in their bones that one day there would be a different, a different world. And they were gaining that world as they came to know Jesus. And that one day every wrong would be made right, every tear would be wiped away. They understood something about the world that we often forget, that this is not the end of the life that we get to live, but it is just a season. And one day that we would go to heaven, and here's what they understood, something really, really deeply about them. That although they were legally enslaved, their souls were set free in Christ Jesus. And so they lived with radical hope. I mean crazy hope that Jesus was coming back, and they would see him face to face one day. And so they were able to live with joy and hope in the midst of one of the greatest human atrocities in our history and in the world's history, how? Because they believed one day that Jesus was coming back. John Thurman, who was a, uh, Howard Thurman, sorry, <clears throat> was an African-American scholar at Boston University in the 20th century and gave a famous lecture at Harvard in 1947 about the hope of these followers of Jesus. And here's what he said. This sung faithful, this sung faith, they were unable to read, served to deepen the slave's capacity for endurance. The spirituals encompassed the Christian belief in a final judgment, a day in which all wrongs would be made right. So I'll come to, here's what these people who were following Jesus deep down knew in their soul. Is that when you know whose you are, that the circumstances of this world may be able to enslave your body, but they cannot enslave your soul. And they were set free in Christ. And this is the power of identity in Christ. No matter what you go through, no matter what someone else says about you. And these were people who were looked at and said, you're not even human. They understood something way bigger than us. That they weren't just human, but they were heirs with Christ. And their worth was not in what they could provide for this plantation owner. Their worth was not in how many people they could make, but their worth was in their beloved relationship with King Jesus. And even though they were enslaved in their body, their souls were set free in Christ. And here's my hope for some of you in this room, is that you would see that no matter what suffering you're currently going through, that there is hope in this life and for a life in the future. And I want to end this sermon by specifically talking to you if hearing that God is your father isn't a comforting word, but it's actually a sharp word because your father and mother wasn't the type of person that you found freedom in, and maybe they left. My grandfather was an um, abusive alcoholic who took out the trauma of fighting in a war and fighting starvation and poverty on my father. And my dad's identity became worthless and broken, shaped by my grandfather's actions and, um, 
my, and my dad didn't come to know Jesus till very late in his life. But growing up, my dad didn't know who he was, and so uh, he couldn't use his words to communicate. And, and for my whole life, I've just been like trying to process this with Jesus. Like, God, why is it that even though I know you, it, it still feels like my worth is dependent on what I do. It still feels like I'm just not quite good enough for the people in my life. I remember meeting Jesus, and um, I just, I believed for, for the first time in my life at that point, I was 17 years old, that it wasn't about what I could do for him, but that he was here with me, even in my brokenness, even in my sinfulness, and he said, I want all of you, and there's nothing you have to do anymore except fall into my arms, and I fell madly in love with my Lord. And in a moment, he both broke me and mended me all at the same time. And here's my hope for some of you. As you've come into Saul Company tonight, where your beliefs don't match your behaviors, where you believe that your identity is in Christ, but really as you look into the mirror, you are radically disappointed by the person you've become. And you're sad about the words that have been spoken over you that seem to hold you so tightly. But here's my hope for you tonight, is as we enter back into worship, that you would believe the words of Jesus. You would believe that when he went on the cross, here's what he said about you, that you are worth it. That even when you feel worthless, that you are worth it, even to the point of death for him on a cross, that you are now his child, which means you can stop working so hard to try to prove to other people your life matters. This is what Jesus says about your life. It mattered so much that he was willing to be strapped around a pole and whipped for every broken bruise and sin in your body. It mattered so much that he was willing to be hung on a cross and nails go through his hands and he looked at you and he said, it is worth it. So does your life matter? Immeasurably more than you could ever ask or imagine. Does your life matter? Yes, it does, but not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus has done for you. So when you feel and ask yourself the question, does my life matter, look on the cross and see that the king of the universe loved you enough and saw that your life mattered to the point where he would die for your sins so that you could finally live. That's what's true about you. Let me pray. Father, our gaze is on the cross tonight. And Jesus, I just confess, I... I feel inadequate to even describe the beauty of what you did on the cross. The way that you ransomed us from death, the way that you paid every cost. Jesus, you came with a reckless abandon to transform us and change us and make us to be like you, to give us a better life, not just a forgiveness of sin, but a new identity in you where we don't have to care about what people say of us. We don't have to care about our athletic performance. We don't have to care about our academic performance or even our appearance. But Jesus, we can believe that when you died on the cross, you looked at every single person in this room and you said, worth it. Worth it. Every whip on your back, every nail in your hand, you said, worth it. Which means here's what's true for us is that no matter what people have said about us, no matter the pain of our father wounds, no matter the X's that have left us, no matter what it is, you say worth it. And that's more true than any lie we fail to believe. Jesus, you tr you're true. 
you can do it tonight. So Jesus, would you reconstruct identities in this room? And would we leave this place resting, not working, understanding that we've been given an identity that can never be shaken or taken away from us. Jesus, would you do that tonight? Would you do it in us?